Welcome to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My guest today is David Bernstein. David is one of the leading voices in intellectual property law, and he stopped by for a conversation during his trip to Geneva to celebrate the UDRP's 20th anniversary at WIPO. He shares how he got interested in the law, his first brushes with intellectual property, his involvement with the UDRP, how to lead a successful law firm, and the importance of having mentors and being a mentor. Please listen in. Good morning, uh, David. Uh, thank you for meeting with me. How are you today? Terrific. It's always a pleasure to be back in Geneva. Yes, yes, and it's good to have you. Uh, well, you are a pretty successful lawyer. Was that always uh, the plan? You know, I uh, wanted to be a lawyer from a very early ah. uh, time in my life. Not necessarily an IP lawyer, but okay. certainly uh, law has always interested me. What, what, uh, what was, what called you from the law? What, what interested you? Well, it, it uh, started somewhat sadly uh, because my parents uh, had a very difficult relationship and were uh, divorced when I was young. But I saw that the law was a force of evil in their lives at the time. Okay. Uh, the laws were very unjust to women in the United States. Yes. My mother essentially had to walk away from the marriage with virtually nothing and okay. had to uh, rebuild her life from scratch. And on top of that, my father used the laws in ways that uh, exacerbated the dispute instead of finding a way to resolve the dispute. And since it was so personal to me, it was particularly painful to see how law was not actually being a force of good in our family, but was really being a uh, way of, of maintaining the dispute and maintaining a balance. I ended up, at the age of 14, actually negotiating my parents' divorce agreement okay. because I felt their lawyers were unable to do so because they were interested in maintaining the fight for the sake of fighting instead of finding a solution that worked for everyone, including not only my parents, who of course were the central characters in their divorce, but my sister and me and, and our family life, which was suffering because of the problems. And so from a, a very young age, I thought that law could do a better job in uh, finding ways to resolve disputes that are more productive. And yes. uh, I was always interested in law from then on. And you, you said you negotiated this. This was without any legal knowledge, but more common sense. I, exactly. And I, I felt that I certainly knew what my parents' needs and interests were, yes. having lived in the yeah, family, yeah. Uh, and that the positions the lawyers were encouraging them each to take was designed only to maximize what they thought they might get away with instead of actually come up with a solution that would work for everybody. And this is something that you still implement on your day-to-day? -day. You try to, to look at it from not a legal perspective, but to get everyone the, what they, they need or what's just? Indeed. I mean, I am a litigator, yes. and so that means I... I'm, I am my client's knight in armor, and I will go and do battle for them. Yeah. But I don't do battle for the sake of the battle. Yes. I, I do that battle for the sake of resolving their business interests. I, I don't feel that I'm hired by clients to litigate a case. I, I feel that I'm hired by clients to understand their business, to understand what has brought them to the brink of a dispute, 
and to advise them on the very best ways to resolve that. Sometimes it's litigation. Sometimes it's direct negotiation. Sometimes the advice I give them is not to litigate at all, but to go and resolve the particular issue in the business context, that that would be a more effective way for them to resolve it. And so for me to do a good job at that, I need to get deep into understanding their current business and their motivations, where they want to go, and what has brought them to the moment uh, that, that brought them to me, essentially. Um, and how were you as a student in, in high school? Were you a good student? <laughs> uh, well, those were difficult years for me yes. uh, because of the turmoil in my family life. And uh, like many teenagers surrounded by turmoil, I probably was uh, uh, not as focused as I should have been on on uh, all the positive things that I should be doing. And so, you know, as teenagers do, you look around for many different ways to try to find your own voice and to develop as a person. But I always took my studies very seriously. Yes. And so, you know, I, I happily can say that my studies didn't suffer. Um, and uh, I was very fortunate to have done well enough in high school that set me up uh, to go to a, a great college uh, and worked quite hard there. Uh, and that set me up to go to a great law school. And, and certainly, those schools gave me a lot of the skills that I've drawn on. But some of the best things I learned going at those places were uh, from my fellow students and the networks that I was able to build uh, over, over time at, at each of those places. Yeah, that's very true. I I feel that sometimes you, when you're when you're in law school, when I was in law school, I felt that I was so focused on studying, and that's great. But you also need to see what's around you and talk to your peers and learn from them. And this is something that sometimes is lost. I feel. Indeed. Um, so this is why you went to law school, and then why did you decide to specialize in IP? Well, my interest in uh, dispute resolution, dispute resolution. Uh, certainly came early. But in law school, I never took any classes in intellectual property, uh -huh. which is ironic interesting. <laughs> since I'm now a teacher yeah. of intellectual property. Um, and for me, my uh, interest in intellectual property actually developed during my clerkship. So in the United States, it's quite common for students after law school to spend a year clerking for a judge. And uh, in that year, it's an opportunity to work very closely with the judge and to see the legal system from uh, behind the bench, yeah. just to see it from another perspective. And I was quite fortunate. I, I obtained a clerkship with a renowned judge in Boston, uh, and uh, we had three intellectual property cases that year. We had a patent case, which was tried to the court. And so my judge was going to be the one who would make the decisions. Uh -huh. uh, many cases are tried to juries in the United States, but because this case was tried to the court, the judge allowed me to sit with him during the entire trial and to see the, uh, the patent practitioners and to uh, watch the different ways in which they tried the case. And it was fascinating to me because on one side was a small patent boutique that clearly knew the technology incredibly well. And on the other side was a uh, big firm lawyer who was not a specialist in the particular technology, but was an extraordinary litigant. Uh, he was an extraordinary advocate. He knew how to articulate his thoughts in a way that was much more effective mm -hmm. than the subject matter expert. And I found that to be a very interesting experience. I both enjoyed the uh, 
the patent topics. I mean, that was interesting to me. But what I really was fascinated by was the quality of the advocacy and to see how even someone who's not necessarily a technical expert could be such an effective advocate in court. We had a second case, which was a trademark case, that involved very interesting issues of fair use. And uh, that was a case on which we granted summary judgment. But I thought that the fair use issues, this is, this is in the late 1980s, uh, the fair use issues were amazingly interesting. Yes. And, you know, it's, it's hard to uh, believe it today, but in the late 1980s, there was no internet. Uh, there was, you know, no email. Yes. Um, faxes were new. Uh, and so the coming of the information age uh, was something that was going to really put some stress on these con concepts of fair use, and I was quite interested in, in fair use. And then finally, we had a copyright case, which was absolutely fascinating. It dealt with the um, user interface of a computer program known as Lotus 123. Yes, I remember. Which, is, uh, which was the precursor to Excel and all the spreadsheet programs today. And the question was, to what degree could you copyright the user interface? Of course, we all knew that the code was copyrightable, but could you copyright the user interface? And could other companies, uh, our case involved a company called Paperback Software. There was another company in this area known as Borland. Hmm. Uh, could those companies copy the same user interface, the same menu structure of how the uh, spreadsheet programs worked? And uh, this was really an issue of first impression at the time. Uh, and the, my, the judge I clerked for wrote a very lengthy and uh, scholarly decision finding that the user interface was copyrightable and that indeed the uh, paperback software product and then later the Borland product uh, infringed the copyright. That went up on appeal to the Court of Appeals uh, for the First Circuit and the Court of Appeals split two to one, reversed us two to one. So one judge agreed with us, two disagreed, but on questions of law, yeah. ultimately, is this something that is copyrightable? Uh, and it went up to the United States Supreme Court. Very few cases go to the yeah, U.S. Yeah, yeah. Supreme Court, although I was fortunate to be involved in three Supreme Court cases just last year. But this was my first uh, experience with a case that went to the Supreme Court. One of the justices had to recuse uh, himself because of a conflict of interest involving the parties, and that left only eight justices. And the justices split four to four. And so, you know, here we had a situation where 12 judges looked at this issue, and uh, six went one way and six went the other way, ultimately. And uh, I was fascinated by it, and I thought that these copyright issues in the computer industry were clearly going to be of, of great importance in the uh, booming economy uh, at that time but also that they were so complicated that the nation's smartest judges completely split. And the clerkship really created my love of intellectual property and uh, helped me decide that that would be a very productive way for me to focus my career following my clerkship. So you said you didn't take any IP classes, but this was like your, your training on IP. It, 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 was, it was indeed uh, my, my class in all three of the major yeah, you took intellectual one, uh, one property. One on each, uh, big, well, maybe more, but this was like key cases. And uh, well, that's pretty interesting, because I think that also a lot of the, what shapes a lawyer's career, it's things that are outside of his control, his or her control. You know, I 
believe that you need to take as much control of your career as you can. And okay. I certainly counsel my associates to think about the arc of their career and how they want to build a career. But no matter how much you try to shape it, influences outside of you, influences external to you, will uh, certainly have a lot of influence. And I've been extraordinarily lucky over the years to have incredible mentors who helped guide me, uh, who helped me get the technical skills that I knew I would need, um, and also helped me find ways to be inspired by the things around me. And certainly, uh, I was very fortunate in this clerkship that we had these three cases and that I was exposed to intellectual property at an, at an early age. Um, you also joined your law firm uh, at the end of the 90s, was that correct? Uh, that was also a period where your law firm really grew. Uh, how, how involved were you in that uh, growth? Well, I, I joined Deborah Boys and Clinton in uh, 1990, uh, right after my clerkship. And I'm probably fairly rare in the legal market today. I've been at the same firm my entire career. Uh, we've seen uh, over the last 30 years a tremendous amount of movement within firms, a lot of uh, lateral movement. Uh, but we as a firm still pride ourselves on hiring the very best and brightest out of law school and out of clerkships and grooming them internally uh, and for internal promotion. The firm actually uh, has not grown, in my view, tremendously over that period. When I joined Deborah Boys, we were 400 lawyers in 1990. Today, we're a bit over 700 lawyers. So over 30 years, we've almost doubled in size. But at the time, Deborah Boys at 400 Lawyers was one of the United States' biggest law firms. And in the period since then, we have seen the rise of these mega firms, firms that are thousands of lawyers. You know, I am so fortunate. I still know every single one of my partners. I have about 150 partners, and I know them all. In fact, just this last weekend, uh, we spent the entire weekend together. Uh, talking about our business, talking about each other, talking about what we mean to each other and the collaborative uh, lockstep culture that we still have. Again, a very uh, maybe old world uh, approach to governing a law firm. Uh, a lockstep compensation model is pretty rare these days. Yes. But we, we discussed uh, whether it still works for us and reaffirmed our commitment uh, to our culture. So the firm has not been one of these firms that says, let's be as big as we can be. And that's by choice. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, let, and we've also decided let's not be all things to all people. Yeah. Because what we, we know we have particular strengths and we've decided that the best way for us to serve our clients is knowing what we do best and focusing our efforts on those. And so we've, our growth has been quite deliberate, but it's been uh, very controlled. We've, uh, we've brought in lateral partners when we've really felt there was a very special person out there who would fit into our culture and would make a significant difference in our ability to manage our business and to service our clients. But we're just not a firm that says, let's be the biggest that we can. Uh, let's be all things to all people. Yeah, uh, that, that's rare. But uh, I'm glad that you're sticking to it. Uh, I also saw that you, you went to, before finishing with your studies, you went to the UK to study. I did. Uh, how was that experience? Well, 
I have always believed that uh, being exposed to more opportunities and especially uh, uh, traveling around the world is something that's going to broaden your horizons and give you different perspectives. You know, one of the things we've certainly seen in our firm that's very important is a, uh, a true commitment to diversity and inclusion. And you can't understand the importance of having a diverse culture and having a diverse employee base and having a diverse set of clients if you have a very insular perspective on the world. So for me, being able to have this year when I studied in uh, London helped me get a greater vision into the world. I went to the London School of Economics, uh, although at the time we said LSC stood for Let's See Europe. <laughs> and although I, I definitely took my studies there seriously, um, I, uh, I really used that as an opportunity to travel. And during that year, I traveled to almost all of the European co countries, and I had a very memorable train trip from London to Moscow, ah. uh, stopping in many countries along the way. And since this was 19, let's see, this was 1986, 1985, 1986, the Berlin Wall was still up, and uh, the Soviet Union, you know, was still uh, um, uh, one country. And uh, the iron block was very strong. And the experience of traveling by train through Western Europe and then crossing the border, and especially once we then got to Berlin, crossing from West Berlin back into East Berlin, it was, it was a fascinating experience, but certainly reminded me of some of the conflict I had seen growing up and how... Uh, how ineffective it is to split people and to create these kind of controversies. And it's been amazing to watch the world uh, both get safer, but also perhaps a little bit more dangerous in, in ways over the, those 30 years. But those were, those were certainly formative experiences. I, I think I met you through, through your work in the UDRP at WIPO. How did you come across uh, the UDRP? Well, by the, uh, by the late 1990s, when the UDRP was, uh, well, the mid-1990s when the UDRP was first being thought of, but the late 1990s when it was launched, I had by then been fortunate enough to begin to develop a reputation in the uh, trademark world. Indeed, I had my first two domain name cases in 1994, before there was even a commercial internet. Yeah. Uh, uh, at the time, one of my clients was Stanley Kaplan, which is a test preparation service. And one of its principal competitors, Princeton Review, registered the domain name Kaplan.com. And, uh, you know, at the time, pretty much the only people who even had access to the Internet was government, military, and universities. But since Stanley Kaplan and Princeton Review both promoted themselves to students, perhaps Princeton Review was a was an uh, advanced thinker in recognizing the value that domain names might have. Well, needless to say, Stanley Kaplan objected, and uh, we were successful. We, we brought a lawsuit for them, and we were successful in, in getting the name back. Uh, ironically, after we won, Princeton Review threatened then to register Kraplin.com, <laughs> and uh, we persuaded them that that would create dilution problems. And my other very early case was for uh, Avon, when somebody, we never found out who it was, an unknown person in uh, Brooklyn registered Avon.com. And uh, here we were, 1994, 1995. First of all, no one knew what a domain name was. I didn't know what a domain name was. I had to be educated on it. I remember 
asking the technical people to explain to me, but wait a second, what is WWW? What is the World Wide Web? And I had a uh, special uh, dedicated phone line installed in my office with dial-up so that I could dial up to the internet. And of course, once you got there, there was nothing to see, so <laughs> I didn't really understand the big deal at the time. But we had an inkling of the coming attractions. And, uh, and so the laws were really tough, because this person registered Avon.com, but was making no use of it whatsoever. Trademark law required use. Yes. And it required somebody doing something with the mark that was going to cause confusion, that was going to cause harm. And we just had no good basis under the existing trademark infringement mechanisms to go after, uh, go after that person. Uh, ultimately, we brought an action under dilution law, under state trademark dilution law. There was no federal dilution law at the time, and we were successful in winning the name back. But dilution was a very poor tool to use for going after uh, the domain name. So, you know, early on I was fortunate enough, going back to the idea that external forces can have a huge influence <laughs> in, in your career, I was fortunate to have these early domain name cases. And when uh, Francis Gurry was developing the idea of the UDRP and was, uh, uh, as he, he does so brilliantly, going around the world sending emissaries to talk with, with leading uh, thinkers and lawyers about this process, uh, Deborah Enix Ross came to New York and we met and she talked with me about the UDRP and I had an opportunity to share my thoughts and insights on it. And I was then very fortunate enough to be one of the early panelists and to get some of the early cases. And, um, you know, it was a fascinating time because we now knew, this is, you know, this is 1999, we really could see at that time that the internet was going to be something very dramatic. It wasn't yet, but uh, it didn't take a tremendous amount of vision to see the power that this would bring to, to commerce. And so uh, we all grappled with how these domain name disputes would be resolved. And the beauty of the UDRP is in its simplicity, yes. because we have a policy that sets some very high-level examples of what it constitutes abusive registration. You know, it's ironic, we think of it as fighting cyber squatting, but the word cyber squatting doesn't appear any place in the UDRP it's policy. True. <laughs> um, but it was also flexible, and uh, we didn't really know exactly how it would have to be used. And so in those early days, we were so cautious and careful in our early decisions to not box us in, to think about each case, to think about what we could learn from each case as we slowly built a legal system. And to be literally on the ground floor to be help to help build the foundation brick by brick of what would become the UDRP was incredibly exciting and I'm here in Geneva for the 20th anniversary conference of the UDRP it's extraordinary to look back and think over the last 20 years that WIPO has had 45,000 cases uh, under the UDRP adjudicating, I believe, 83,000 domain names. Yeah. This is an extraordinary number of disputes that have been resolved quickly and efficiently, in my view, fairly. It's saved the court system from massive amounts of litigation. But also, because our decisions are published and because we were so careful from the start and, of course, continue to be, our decisions have built an entire legal ecosystem. 
And uh, I was incredibly lucky to be one of the people who's been involved in, in this very collaborative effort. It's, it's been uh, hundreds of panelists who have written these decisions. We study each other's decisions. We meet annually here at WIPO. We talk about the hardest issues. And I think it's been uh, an amazing success of how a clear problem, because cyber squatting in the late 1990s burst onto the scene as a huge problem, how a, a problem like that could be resolved efficiently with uh, great thinking, great vision, and of course a lot of hard work over the years. And uh, so you said you are here for the 20th anniversary. How do you see the next 20 years? Well, it's an interesting time because uh, ICANN is looking at the UDRP right now to uh, study it and decide, does it need changes? And so there is a mechanism uh, in place for ICANN to look at the UDRP and consider, is it working well? Should it be improved? Should it be changed? My sense of the way the UDRP has evolved is that it's such a brilliant document that there's sufficient flexibility to allow the UDRP to address new forms of bad faith that have arisen. When the, when the UDRP was first published and adopted in the late 1990s, the internet was dramatically different. We didn't have privacy services shielding who the owner of a domain name was. Uh, we certainly didn't have the GDPR, which blocks the ability of trademark uh, owners and, and brand owners to actually research to what degree is somebody a bad faith actor who's registered many different names. Now, the GDPR, for all of the good it may do, provides a shield that I think is allowing people to hide behind privacy and uh, commit more types of cyber squatting that might have been found in, in the prior days. We didn't have uh, pay-per-click pages. Uh, we didn't have uh, phishing. We didn't have a lot of the kind of bad faith practices we've seen. Uh, and even over the course of the UDRP, uh, in the beginning, domain names had to be in ASCII text. Now, of course, we have internationalized domain names, which is fabulous. It brings the domain name around, uh, excuse me, it brings the internet and the domain name system all around the world so that everybody can participate. But it also creates all sorts of opportunities for spoofing and for other problems where domain names that might look like they come from the source you expect actually are derived of characters that might mix in a Cyrillic character uh, or some other character that looks like the same character you'd expect. You might think it's PayPal, but in fact, it's, uh, it's uh, not, uh, not the ASCII L, but it might be from another character set. And so it just creates much easier opportunities for fraud and for bad faith. And what's so brilliant about the UDRP is that it hasn't been edited at all over the last 20 years. Instead, panelists have helped the law evolve within the UDRP to address these new forms of bad faith. So the question for the next 20 years is, we know that bad actors will find new ways to uh, deceive, to commit fraud, but I believe the UDRP has shown its flexibility to address that organically. It is certainly possible that the UDRP could be improved, but when I look at all of the stakeholders who are considering how they would want to change the UDRP, I worry that if we make too many changes, we will overburden the UDRP with 
too much complexity, it will become a, a more costly system, it will become a less efficient system, uh, and if we hang too many Christmas tree ornaments on it, it, it could just fail by its own weight. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to ICANN's review. I hope that I'll be able to contribute meaningfully to that process. There are certainly uh, changes that many people have advocated for, but it may be that we should also consider, is the UDRP something that can continue to develop organically on its own to address new forms of bad faith, new forms of abusive registration? And I probably have a bias towards that, although I will keep an open mind as the discussions proceed. Uh, another topic I wanted to hear your thoughts, uh, because we discussed this uh, over email, uh, about personal branding. Um, I think many lawyers, and maybe this is because of US regulation, they don't uh, promote uh, their brand, per their personal brand. But I see this something that is changing. Uh, I've also, I don't know if it's true, but I've noticed that you've become more active on LinkedIn than you were before. Uh, how do you see this fitting with, within your own professional career and also within your law firm? Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think regulations prevent personal branding at all. There are limitations in the United States on lawyer advertising, mm -hmm. uh, although many of those regulations have been curtailed by our First Amendment, uh, which, which uh, protects the right of free speech. And so to the extent you have something truthful to say, uh, uh, whether it's as a lawyer, or as a doctor, or as an accountant, uh, or in other professions, the law generally recognizes you should have the right to say things that are truthful. Uh, and I know that in Europe, uh, it used to be that comparative advertising was disallowed in Germany, and certainly the European regulations have moved towards an opening up of comparative advertising. But branding is very different from strictly advertising. I mean, branding is about, uh, about uh, developing your own reputation. It's about developing your own voice. It's about thinking of what you want to project uh, in the world. And I, perhaps because I'm a trademark lawyer and, and brands, the brands I work with are all about how they connect with consumers, I have long thought about what my personal brand is. How do I want to be perceived? Now, you're right. When I started, there was no LinkedIn. Uh, <laughs> uh, there was you know, no social media. There was no internet at all. And, uh, and so the, the, the development of my personal brand during my early years were things that I had to use traditional media to do. So first of all, you, you start, of course, just with the quality of your work. You have to do fabulous work. Yeah. And uh, Debevoise and Plimpton, when I joined in 1990, was a firm that probably ascribed to the old world model of branding, which is uh, let's build a better mousetrap and they will come. Let's just do great work and clients will beat a path to our door and find us. Uh, 30 years later, everybody knows that's just not something that's a successful strategy. Uh, that there are so many wonderful lawyers out there, so many incredible firms, that we have to, uh, we have to let the world know what makes us special. Uh, and so we do need to cultivate what our own brand will be. So I cultivated my brand uh, through, of course, my work, but also through writing. As a young associate, I did a lot of publishing and, and writing. I cultivated my own brand by being active in uh, professional associations, 
where I could work on the projects that really I was passionate about and I could allow others in the industry to see my passion because that would al allow them to see if I can approach this problem, let's say for the International Trademark Association with the kind of passion and dedication that I did, hopefully those clients would think that I could take the same passion and dedication to their legal problems. And that was successful to me. The world is very different today. We do communicate much more through social media. And, uh, and so, you know, my Facebook page, which is really more personal, uh, and, and my friends started as a way for me to manage and track what my children were doing, because social <laughs> media was important to them. Yeah. They, they are digital natives. They grew up with that world. I was an immigrant to their world and, and wanted to learn it. But since then, I've come to really appreciate the power of Facebook. And seeing what that did to, for my personal network helped me to realize how important it would be to cultivate my professional network in the same way. And LinkedIn uh, is an amazing tool to do that. And so not only am I more active on LinkedIn, but uh, I co-chair our firm's market prominence committee, where we really think about how do people, how do we as a firm do what I did personally? How do we as a firm say we need to cultivate our brand? We need to communicate our brand. And how do we build our reputation, not only outside of our firm, not only outside of our legal market and outside of our client, but in the business community more generally? And LinkedIn has been a great way for us to do that. And so the firm has its own uh, LinkedIn presence, uh, and we've gotten much more active over the past few years, and we encourage our lawyers to think about how they will use LinkedIn uh, as well. Uh, and last thing before you, I know you have to catch a flight. Uh, you said how important in your career it was that you had some mentors. How do you give that uh, back to other young associates? How involved are you? You know, um, we have no factories. We have no farms that grow product. Uh, all we have at, uh, at our firm, and this is true of, of all law firms, is our intellectual, uh, our intellectual assets. And it's our people. And so we recognize that the development of talent is literally the most important thing we do. I can service my clients, but if I don't build an incredible team behind me, and if I don't have a succession plan in place, we might just get some one-off assignment for a client, but we won't build the kinds of relationships that are meaningfully, are so professionally meaningful, but also from a business perspective going to be meaningful to our, our firm. And so I think back over my career uh, and over my educational life as well, since we, we talked about education, to who were my mentors along the way? What did I learn from them? And how have I taken those lessons? And then how can I, in turn, share that with, with my colleagues? I remember a very formative time uh, when I was at Princeton. I went to Princeton University, where I was working on a joint project my, uh, my major in, at uh, Princeton was in the Woodrow Wilson School of Public Affairs. And I was extremely interested in policy development at the time. Uh, my interest in law, uh, of course, we talked about. And I, I thought I might even want to go into politics and use law mm -hmm. as a force of making society better uh, in that way. And uh, the Woodrow Wilson School had these project teams where you would get together with 10 or 12 of your colleagues 
and uh, you'd work together on a project. And uh, as a young, probably somewhat hot-headed, uh, arrogant student, I thought that I knew the right answers. And uh, my colleagues didn't always agree. And I was very doctrinaire. And when we would meet and I would try to push the group to see it my way, I was, um, I was aggressive in promoting my position and I was completely ineffective. And I remember in the first policy group that I worked on, I ended up writing a dissenting report. And uh, maybe it was, maybe it, it was so long ago, maybe it made me feel good that I sort of put my mark down. I said, this is my view. I think you're all wrong. But at the end of the day, I was ineffective because the group went in a different direction. And one of my professors met with me and said, you know, you've articulated your position very, very well. But if you're interested in changing policy, being the person who dissents doesn't actually advance the policies that you're interested in. Uh, and we talked a lot about that. And we talked about the importance of compromise and more productive ways of collaboration. And it was such a wake-up call for me because I had often worked on my own before. This was the first time that I really had to work in a project team. And I, didn't, and I was not a good member of the team. So the good news about being in college, of course, is there was another semester after that. And so my next semester, I was on another project team. We tackled a different project. And I really took what this professor told me to heart. And I decided that I would be more collaborative, that I would certainly have and express my views, but I would try to do it in ways that would uh, be, be more productive within the group and to work with the group instead of working at odds uh, of the group. And it was a transformative experience for me because I ended up being a central leader of, of that group. And my views back then were much more conservative than many of my colleagues. Um, and nevertheless, I was able to help the group build consensus around a report and a recommendation that was probably more conservative than they originally would have gone. Maybe wasn't as fully conservative as, as I would have done, but um, I realized the power of collaboration. Fast forward, it's probably one of the reasons that I love Deborah Boys so much, because the heart of our firm is collaboration. The nature of being in a lockstep culture is that we don't have fiefdoms. We don't have turf battles because there's no turf. We don't worry about what my compensation will be or, or what my partner's compensations will be because we all get compensated based on a very strict formula. It has nothing to do with origination. It has nothing to do with how many hours you've worked. It's strictly based on your seniority in mm -hmm. the firm. And the idea is that we are one firm and that we work together. And the lessons that I learned of collaboration, I'm so fortunate, not only has I think it made me a better lawyer and when I advocate for things in a, in a group, you know, obviously I have much better skills to do so, but it also taught me that life is more fun when you collaborate with your colleagues and, and work pr productively together. And so with my associates today, I try very hard to channel the kinds of techniques that my mentors have used. And, and of course, it was that professor. Uh, it was my thesis advisor. 
uh, at Princeton. I, I wrote my thesis on the U.S. First Amendment. Actually, <laughs> it was uh, it was some of my leading professors in law school. I remember my very first moot court argument was an absolute disaster because I didn't have the skills. But instead of walking away in frustration, uh, I worked with my professor to understand how I could have been a better advocate. Uh, it was the judge I clerked for who was an extraordinary lawyer uh, and, and an amazing jurist and uh, who took a lot of time to sit with me and talk about his decisions. And then within my firm, it was the amazing lawyers I've had the great pleasure to work with over many years who all helped me build the, the knowledge and the skills and the techniques to be the kind of lawyer and business leader I am. And so I try to draw on the different techniques and the different approaches those mentors used, and I do that with my associates. And I sit with my associates regularly, one-on-one. -on -one. I talk about where they see they are in their career, where they want to go, um, you know, what's their vision for the future. They may not achieve that vision. They may even change that vision. But I want them all to think about the direction they're going. What is their North Star? So that they can at least chart their path to know that they're going in the right direction. We talk about what kind of cases they do want to work on. What were the most interesting experiences they've had? What were their frustrations? And how can, how can they address that? How can they do better? And if they need it, you know, what kind of outside help might we get them? Uh, if, if somebody feels that they need better presentation skills. You know, we, we have the capacity to actually get them some training as well. I think one of the things that uh, is unfortunate in the way in which law has moved is it moves at such a fast pace today. And we're under so much time pressure that we don't often take the time to step back and think about uh, think about being great mentors. And we try very hard at Deborah Voice to do that. I'm sure we're not perfect at it. But because we dedicate the time to it, and because we ourselves get training within the partnership, we bring in outside experts to train us on more effective ways to give feedback. For example, um, how to mentor across differences, which is incredibly important. The experiences I had growing up may be very different from the experiences of one of our lawyers you know, who perhaps grew up in India and, uh, and had a, a very different educational and family life. Or a lawyer who may be the first generation uh, professional in her family. Uh, and so I've had to learn how do we mentor over those differences, across those differences, so that I can try to bring my knowledge to them, but also respect that they're their background is going to be very different. Their culture may be very different. Uh, and uh, try to find ways to allow them to become fully realized as the best lawyer they can be. Uh, well, I have personally learned a lot from you, so I consider you a mentor. And I just want to say thank you for your time. And this has been great. Thanks, Rodolfo. I really appreciate the chance to share these thoughts because uh, I've been so fortunate in my career to have learned from others, and if, if people can learn a little bit from this, that would be a, a great joy. Thank you very much.